Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 30, I'm sorry, 33. Did I say 32? I did that last week. 33, we're going to look this morning at nearly all of the passage. It's not terribly long, but we're going to go down through verse 11. And um, so let's read God's word together. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the two female servants and their children in front. Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead, and he bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the woman, the women and children Who are these with you, he asked. And Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. And then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. And next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Let's pray. Father, we want to pause. We want to thank you for your word this morning. We pray now as we come and as we meditate upon it. Father, we pray that these things would be acceptable in your sight. And Father, we pray that you will not leave us as you found us as we've come this morning. But rather, that your word would take root and produce intended results. In our lives, in Christ's name, amen. So, I just want to catch you up to speed on where we are in the story. You'll, you may recall Jacob has had, uh, at the end of chapter 31, he had an encounter with his father-in-law Laban. He had labored for him for a number of years. He had married his two daughters, Leah and Rachel, and um, he'd had a number of children with them. And... He and Laban, throughout their relationship, were at odds with each other a great deal. And so at the end of chapter 31, there's this scene in which Laban and Jacob sit down and they have a covenant meal together. And there's been a sacrifice and they break bread and they part ways. And as they parted company, it appeared that there was peace in their midst. And then we move to chapter 32, and in chapter 32 we noted that Jacob was making his way back to the promised land, but instead of going directly to the promised land, he takes a very significant detour. And what we learned was that that detour that he was taking was in order that he might 
meet and somehow find reconciliation with his brother Esau. Now, if you rewind the story and you go back to the uh, later chapters in Genesis chapter 20, chapter 28, 29, 30, you see how this relationship between Jacob and Esau got so nasty. And it got nasty because Jacob had stolen the birthright and uh, the blessing from his brother. When Jacob left home, his brother wanted to kill him. And so for all these years, Jacob and Esau have lived separate lives. And now coming back together, Jacob gets word. He sent his messengers ahead to Esau and his messengers came back and they said, Jacob is waiting for you. No. He said, Jacob got the message and he's coming to see you and he's got 400 men with him. And you recall last week, instantly in the heart of Jacob, he is scared And so he devises this plan, and when we get to this chapter, chapter 33, what we see is the plan beginning to unfold. Now, remember, at the end of 32, though, God had other plans for Jacob, and he met him in the night, and they wrestled together, and the parting of ways was, I want your blessing, God. And so he gives him his blessing. He changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Recall, one of the things we noted last week was, for the rest of his life, he's called Jacob and Israel. Unlike Abram and Abraham, or Sarah and Sarai, this name is changed, but he reverts back and forth. And the Bible uses Israel, and it uses Jacob. And what we kind of commented on last week was, that highlights for us the tenuous nature of this transformation that has gone on in Jacob. Something that, if you're at all understanding of your own heart, you probably get, right? You're not fully transformed. You're in process. And Jacob was in process. I want you to notice right here at the beginning, you get a sense of that in process, right? When Jacob begins to scheme again, how does he divide the clan up? <laughs> well, he divides the clan up by his, his liking, really, The fondness of his heart is the way that he divides this group up. And so he takes his, he takes the two female servants and he puts them in front with their children. They're the first group. And then he takes, uh, Leah and he puts her and her children in that group. And then he, at the very end of the, of the line, he puts Rachel and Joseph nearest to his heart. He figures, look, if, if he starts if Esau starts whacking my family, by the time he gets to Rachel and, and uh, Joseph, perhaps he'll be tired. I mean, that's kind of the, the rationale. And so he's still doing some scheming. That's kind of the Jacob part. But you'll notice that he himself moves out. And he goes, he approaches his brother ahead of them all, verse 3. And he bows down to Esau. Seven times. Listen, this is what you call falling on your sword. He's eating large amounts of crow at this point. Because what he is saying, right? that's significant that he bowed down seven times to Esau. Seven in the Bible, as you may know, is the number of perfection. In this sense, what he is communicating is, I am completely before you. Right? 
And so he bows down to his brother seven times. He shows respect and deference to Esau. He is, a, he is in essence saying to Esau, the right way is that you should have had the, the birthright, and, and, and I understand that I've wronged you. I want this relationship to be right. This is Jacob making movement towards the reconciliation that he wants with Esau. He wants this relationship to be right. Now, remember, he is headed to the land of promise. But we said last week, in order for that to be a place of rest, in order for it to be all that God has intended for it to be, what has to happen? He has to have his relationships in order. He at least has to make the best effort he could possibly make. And so that's what we see Jacob doing, making, going all out in his effort as he gets there. I want you to notice verse 4. Esau ran to meet Jacob, and he embraced him, and he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. I want you just to turn on. We're not going to play Bible trivia. Do you remember another passage where somebody did that? Middle of Luke. It's a story called the prodigal son. And the son, when he comes back, you remember what the father does? The father goes out to meet him. Right? He throws off all his dignity and he runs down the road and he embraces his son. You know what? Jesus picks up the language and uses almost identically the language that is used here in Genesis 33. Interesting, isn't it? Here is Esau moving to his brother and and embracing him, weeping with him, kissing him. They wept together. It's a beautiful picture. What's going on in this whole story? You've got a bulletin outline. The title of it is When Reconciliation Reigns. When reconciliation reigns, at least three things happen. First, it destroys stereotypes. And that's what I want you to see right here as we, we kind of begin this. It destroys stereotypes. Listen, we are complex beings. We, we are not at all one-dimensional. If you were to begin, if I were to ask you a question like, I want you to think about what comes to your mind when I mention a few names. Norman Schwarzkopf. Tiger Woods, golf, Babe Ruth, home runs, baseball, Walter Cronkite, newsman, news anchor. What about Neil Armstrong, astronaut, moon, moon landing? When you think about media figures, when you think about people in general, you typically just you attach something to them that you right you know about them. So if you were to meet Neil Armstrong, the only thing that you would talk about is the moon landing. He's one-dimensional to you. Neil Armstrong has done one thing and one thing only in your mind, and that is he landed on the moon, and he was the first man to walk on the moon. There are a number of other things about Neil Armstrong that you perhaps don't know that make him multidimensional. He was a naval aviator in the Korean War. He's an undergrad 
we'll see if we have any Purdue fans or Purdue. Did you know? You knew that. All right, good. He's an under, he got his undergraduate from Purdue. Well, this will stretch you a little bit further. Where did he get his graduate degree from? UCLA. Any UCLA people here? No? Okay. Um, SEC took care of them last night. Let's see. <laughs> Had to do that. How about this? He's from a, a town in Ohio, very difficult to pronounce, Wapakoneta. Anybody know where Wapakoneta is, Ohio? And he was an Eagle Scout in the Boy Scouts of America. John Glenn said he was, that Neil Armstrong was the humblest of all the astronauts. He didn't, Neil Armstrong had no interest in traveling around selling being the first man landing on the moon. It just wasn't kind of his makeup. He didn't, he, 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 did, he was doing a job. He had a function, and so he went and he did it, and he didn't want to glamorize really what it was that he had done. He's a multidimensional person. We are all multidimensional. But when you're in conflict with someone, right, you hang the one dimension on them. So, he's an angry man. She's a gossip of a woman. Uh, mean. They're spiteful. They're hateful. They're difficult to deal with. They don't get it. They don't understand. When we're in a relationship and it's, and it doesn't go well, we tend to deal in one-dimensional stereotypes of that person. Because when you do that, it's easy to keep from liking them. You with me? So in our story, what has been Jacob's understanding of who Esau is all along? He's an angry brother. That's who Esau is. That, is. that is the mindset that Jacob has had about his brother Esau all along. Esau can only be angry. He's not allowed to be anything else in this relationship that Jacob has had with him because of what Jacob did to him. And so he's thought about it, no doubt, all these years when he sends his servants. He knows, he believes in his heart that what he is going to meet is an angry brother who wants to kill him. And he's been one-dimensional, but Jacob wants reconciliation. And so he's willing to listen to the broader picture. He's willing to believe that perhaps Esau is more than just an angry brother, though he believes that what he, what he, is, what he is. When I was a kid, we lived in uh, San Bernardino, California. And, and in those days, I, I, I don't know if they still do this, but all of the houses had red brick walls around them. And they were pretty high. So for a little guy like me at that point, I was tinnish, um, difficult to scale. And, uh, but they went all the way around the, the, the yard. And we would play stickball and that sort of stuff, baseball in the backyard. And frequently we would hit the ball over the back fence. And I remember going and my buddy, you know, boosting me up on the fence to jump over to get the ball and then somehow scramble back over the fence, okay? And so we would go over into that guy's yard to get our ball and, and his dog would start barking and he would get angry and he would come out. And so in our minds, the neighbor across the fence was just an angry old man. That was all he was. And one time, I don't even know how it happened, we my parents probably said, go around and knock on his door and ask him if you can get your ball out of his yard. 
And so we did that. And you know what? He wasn't such a bad guy. Turns out he didn't want us to get hurt jumping the fence. And so we would go and ask him, and he started giving us apricots off his tree and plums off of that tree, and he turned out to be a nice fella. He wasn't at all the angry old man that we had made him, made him out to be. Okay? And so going a different route, doing a different thing, afforded us an opportunity to see us, to see a different person. And in Jacob and Esau's relationship, that's what's happening. Because Jacob is committed to letting reconciliation reign in his life. And so he approaches his brother. Listen, you have, in order for your relationships to be right, you can't make people one-dimensional. I'm as bad about it as anybody. Nobody is one-dimensional. They all are multifaceted. They have backgrounds. They have histories. They're real people. They have blood coursing through their veins. They have personalities. They're up one day. They're down another day, just like I am, just like you are. And so don't fall into the trap of doing that. It will kill your efforts to reconcile them. Apply the golden rule to other people instead of making them one-dimensional. Ask yourself, Do you want someone to see you as one-dimensional? Do you want someone to see you in that worst moment? Do you want someone to remember you for the rest of your life as the angry brother? Probably not. See, when we do that, we destroy and we minimize the fact that they are images of God just like we are. So we need to move towards them. And here, Jacob moves towards his brother, hoping, hoping that he's more than just a hot mess of anger when he gets to him. And it turns out, turns out that Esau was more than just a hot mess of anger. I want you to notice the second point, and that is that it, when, reconcili- when reconciliation reigns, it honors relationships. It honors relationships. And here's what I mean by that. It builds relationships up. It, it, it invests in relationship. It is interested in making relationships right. You know, we've talked about this when we were in the first part of the book of Genesis. But is it, isn't it interesting in that first opening couple of chapters that after God made Adam and he had him in the garden... Adam and God God have a relationship, and yet God comes and says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for him to be in the situation he's in. And so he makes Eve, and they have this relationship together. Adam had God. God had Adam. But he wanted more for us. He wanted us to have these relationships. And so he creates Eve, and those relationships generate more relationships. And on it goes. You see, God is interested. He created us. We're relational beings. And when our relationships aren't good, it is bad for us. It's bad for us spiritually. It's bad for us as a congregation. It's, you know it's bad for your family. It is difficult going when there is a breakdown in our relationships. You say, well, you just don't know. You don't know how difficult people are that I have to deal with. 
Well, I know how difficult I am sometimes to deal with. I know how difficult you are sometimes to deal with. Yes, relationships are complex, but that doesn't mean they're not worth it. Listen, if this is an area you struggle in, if, if you've got relationships, there's a wonderful book. Uh, the title of it is Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And I would commend it to you. Um, it's kind of from a, a, a Christian counseling perspective. It's not a terribly long book, but it's a very insightful book. Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Great title, isn't it? Yes. Relationships are messy. Keeping them in good working order, putting them back together should be a passion for us. Listen, that's what the Apostle Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 2. Marion read it for us earlier, right? He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but he gave that up, right? And Paul says, in your relationships with one another, you should be willing to give up status, give up power, give up authority, give up whatever it takes for you to get up, give up in order for that relationship to be right. Level the, level the field. And you level the field by giving up some of the things that you are perhaps entitled to. Well, you don't understand. I'm right. They're wrong. Let me read a passage for you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew 5, verse 23, Jesus says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, before you come here to worship, before you come bring your gifts at the altar, be working on your relationships. Think, think about that. Jesus is saying, your relationships matter more than coming to worship. That's significant. Your relationships matter. They matter in, in every facet of church life, family life, home life. And he's saying, try to get those right before you come here to make this right. Are you doing that? Listen, I, I try to practice what I'm preaching. I try. But I am right there with you. It is difficult. I have a situation right now. I'll just be a little candid. I can't be terribly candid. But I have a situation right now that has been grinding on me for several months. And I have made a person that I don't even know very one-dimensional. And I've realized over this last week when a couple of other incidents happened that brought that person back up in my life, that I am going to have to find some way to go to that individual and reconcile what isn't even yet a relationship. I have to reconcile my way into a relationship with this person because I feel as if there have been things that have gone on that aren't right. And it's incredibly difficult because I'm right. And I know that guy's wrong. But I 
have got to go and I have to do that. You know why? Because it's eating at me. It is wearing me out. It's causing sleepless nights of me thinking about all of the things that I'm going to say to that guy when I meet him. Because I'm going to go by his office and we're going to have a talk. And then it hit me the other day. Who are you? Has the gospel transformed you at all? Has it changed your heart, Sam? Because if it has, you can't go that way. You have to go the other way. Jesus said, get the relationships right before you come here to make this one right. Now listen, he's not saying you can't come to church if you've got a relationship that isn't reconciled. But he's saying... He is lifting up those relationships. He's saying these things, these are really, really important. Make sure you're working on them. Here's the third and final point. When reconciliation, when reconciliation reigns, it involves sacrifice. Jacob has sent a lot of loot ahead in order to find favor in the eyes of Esau. But remember from last week, it's also a form of restitution. So he, he is trying to restore this relationship. And there's an interesting point in, in the passage. If you look down at verse 10, you'll see that Jacob is really insistent that Esau receive this. He says, if I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift. And that word gift is important. It's the, it's the same word for tribute. So he's, he is offering him a tribute because, remember, he is taking Esau and he said, Esau, you're not down here, you're up here. And so I'm giving you a gift. But Esau is reluctant to receive that gift. And so then in verse 11, there's a change. And then the change is this. He says, please accept. Notice there's a different word there, hopefully in your translation. In the NIV, it's present. But the actual word in the Hebrew is blessing. Jacob is saying to Esau, no, no, no. Esau, please accept this blessing What did he steal from his brother? The blessing of God. You see, Jacob is saying, I'm giving it back. I'm giving back to you what has come my way. This this represents the temporal blessing of God in my life, which I took from you wrongly. Please receive the blessing of God. That's really powerful. That's really amazing. I mean, he is, I mean, I mean, in that day and age, flocks and herds and goats and donkeys and sheep and cattle and oxen and all this stuff represented tremendous wealth. And Jacob has become wealthy. And yet he's pushed all of that up on ahead to Esau. And he first says, here's a gift. Take this gift. And Esau is reluctant, and so he turns it and he says, receive the blessing of God. Because that's what it is. And that's what I stole from you. And you know what that is in Jacob's side? It's a sacrifice. He is giving up what 
is his, what God had given to him, even with all of his scheming and his going and coming, he gives up to his brother. Here's the, here's the idea. No relationship is ever made right without a sacrifice. Someone has to eat it. Right? It's just the reality. Somebody has to, somebody has to absorb some of this. In Philippians 2, Paul says Jesus absorbed it. He gave up a whole bunch. He gave, he gave away all of the trappings of heaven in order to come here and minister to us. Of course, more than that, He offered Himself as a sacrifice of atonement for us in order to make the relationship right. Let me ask you, what are you going to have to give up in order to get a relationship back on track? What will you have to eat? What will you have to absorb Will you have to die? Maybe you'll have to die to self, right? Maybe you'll have to give up a little bit of recognition, a little bit of pride, a little bit of, you know, they owe me here in order to move towards reconciliation. Well, in order for you and I to be reconciled, Jesus gave up for us. What's fascinating is that the Apostle Paul says, you know, we have that ministry of reconciliation now. He says that in 2 Corinthians, the first three and four chapters. is because we were reconciled to God, because while we were yet sinners, think about that. When we say that phrase, think what's entailed in that. While we were yet sinners, while we were in absolute, total rebellion to God, God moved towards us. While we were thumbing our noses and, and, and making really profane gestures in our heart at God, He moved towards us. Right? That's what we have to think about. That's the, that's the grace, that is the grace that's the salve on your heart that will allow you to go to somebody. Even though you're right and they're wrong. Even though they may be that one dimensional character. It's the grace of the supper. It's the grace of God. It's the work of Christ that can allow us to move towards someone who's hurt us badly. Someone who's done us wrong. And that's where we have to go. But what a great day. I don't plan this. We just preach through. We're just preaching through Genesis. But what a, a great time for the Lord's Supper to fall. Right here, when we're talking about how reconciliation needs to reign in our lives, to have before us the greatest picture of reconciliation in the Lord's Supper. Listen, as we come to the table this morning, I want to remind you, it's not our table. This is the Lord's table. It's a table that He set for us. It's a table that not only reminds us of the supper, but allows us to participate in the events of that evening. And it is a means of grace for us. It is the salve on our hearts. 
Exactly the way the word preached is, the sacrament is a visual picture for us, right? Because we're weak. And so we need a moving image, if you will. And the moving image for us this morning is the Lord's Supper. So my invitation is to all of you, if you are a member of an evangelical church, you've been baptized, you're trusting in Christ by faith alone, the supper is for you. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. So let me encourage you this morning. If you are a Christian, as I like to say, you're in the fight. means you're battling. There's a little bit of Jacob and a little bit of Israel rolling around inside your heart. The supper's for you. If you're here and you think you've got it all together, cleaned yourself up pretty good, you think God is most pleased with you when you are doing things rightly, I encourage you to evaluate. Evaluate what it took in order for you to be right with God. And that is the sacrifice of the Savior.